The China Global South podcast is supported in part by the Africa China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg and by our subscribers. Thank you. If you'd like to subscribe for daily news and exclusive analysis about every aspect of China's engagement in Africa, Asia, and throughout the developing world, go to chinaglobalsouth.com forward slash subscribe. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China Global South podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Podcast Network. I'm Eric Olander in Ho Chi Minh City, and as always, I'm joined by my colleague, China Global South Managing Editor, Kobus van Staten, in lovely Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, today we're going to be talking about key trends in Chinese outward investment in the Global South and around the world. We got some numbers from Ernst & Young a few weeks ago, looking back at Q1 2023, and overall outward direct investment was at $40.5 billion in the first quarter. And this is really important because it's a significant year-on-year increase of almost 20%. And that is the best first quarter performance that China has had since the beginning of the pandemic back in 2019. So really interesting to see that the money is starting to flow again out of China in, in the investment realm. Now, the largest recipients of Chinese ODI, and this is very interesting, again, also tracked by Ernst & Young, are countries here in Southeast Asia, not a huge surprise, Serbia, the United Arab Emirates, and Kazakhstan. And Kobus, this is really interesting because we've heard a lot of talk in recent weeks about the death of the Belt and Road. We've heard a lot of talk about that it's really kind of come to an end. And this is the narrative that we're seeing a lot in the US and in Europe a lot. But at the interesting you know, past couple of weeks that we've been following, that Xi Jinping mentioned the Belt and Road specifically at the Central Asian Leader Summit in Xi'an. Also, they signed a new Belt and Road deal with Argentina. And so while I think it might be premature to start writing the obituary on the BRI, especially if this outward investment is starting to pick up and the rhetoric is starting to pick up. Now, let's not forget also that the Belt and Road is now coming into its 10th year. So this fall will be the 10th anniversary of the BRI. The key thing to remember when we talk about the BRI, though, is that it's constantly evolving. There's no definition to it. It's this amorphous kind of weird amoebic kind of thing where it can evolve and change depending on whatever they want it to be at the time. So again, I just really urge caution for people who are kind of writing and reading these articles that call for the death or they're saying it's basically over. And I think these FDI, ODI numbers are showing that uh, there's some life left in it. Absolutely. You know, over the last one, I've seen Western observers, you know, essentially arguing that because Chinese investment in hard infrastructure has been pulled back a lot, that signals the end of the BRI. And I think that seems to be, to me anyway, it seems like a misconception. I think, you know, in the first place, I don't think Chinese project financing is going away. It's changing, but it's not going away. And I also don't think the Belt and Road is going away. To the extent that I think Qing Gang, the Chinese foreign minister, earlier this year mentioned that there will probably be a BRI forum happening in you know later this year at some stage. So, you know, I think all of those are, are indications that the Belt and Road might be changing, but it's not going away. 
Well, we're going to pick up a conversation that we had with Becky Ray from the Boston University Global Development Policy Center and Margaret Myers from the Inter-American Dialogue in Washington, D.C. And they wrote a paper earlier this year talking about how Chinese project finance and development finance is evolving into what they called a small is beautiful model. Now, to be fair, Becky would probably tell us right away she did not frame that, that small is beautiful is a widely used framing that defines the current state of Chinese finance around the world, both from the policy banks, corporates, in lots of different ways. So today we're going to get a perspective from Beijing on this, and I'm absolutely thrilled to have on the program for the first time Edwin Lee, who's a partner in the Beijing office of the international law firm Denton's. Edwin wrote an article earlier this year in the journal China ODI Project Finance and Law entitled How to Define Xiaomei. Xiaomei is small and beautiful in the Belt and Road Initiative. Also, Edwin, working as a lawyer in this space, works a lot with different stakeholders in Beijing, so he is very well positioned to help us understand some of the current trends. A very good evening to you in Beijing, Edwin. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you on the program, and I'm really excited because you have this front row seat to all of these changes that have been happening but before we get started, and again, I'm a little bit of an amateur here, and so is Cobus. We looked up on ChatGPT the difference between ODI and FDI, and a lot of people use those words interchangeably. And I think even in my introduction, I used the words interchangeably. I have to admit that when we saw the answer on ChatGPT, we didn't really understand it. So maybe we can start with a little bit of scene setting and some definition of terms. What is the difference between outward direct investment and foreign direct investment? What I want to say about FDI and ODI from China perspective, FDI means the foreign direct investment into China. ODI means overseas direct investment from China. So that's what I want to talk about this FDI and ODI. Okay, that actually makes sense. So, Cobus, you got that. So one is inbound to China, one is outbound to China. So when we talk about Chinese FDI, that is actually other companies, countries, and stakeholders investing in China. ODI is Chinese entities going overseas. Okay, that makes sense. And in the same vein of clarifying terms, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about this phrase, small and beautiful. How is it translated, and where does it come from, and how does the Chinese government use it at the moment? Okay, small or beautiful. I would like to use or, not and. So this small or beautiful was first mentioned by the central government in China, I think, in 2021. I think it's the third seminar about the BRI. So at that time, this small or beautiful was mentioned and then was followed by the Chinese EPC contractor, investor, and the financial banks here. So a lot of work are focusing on these small or beautiful projects, especially those BRI projects. When they come to Chinese EBC contractors or especially come to the Chinese policy banks or the Chinese financial institutions, those kind of Chinese banks would like to say whether this project is small and beautiful. That's their standard, small and beautiful. So you must be small and then the project must be beautiful. Uh, so at that time, I think in the past two or three years, that's the basic standard for the banks here to select the projects. Okay, what do the banks define as small? Based on my understanding, the small means the project, the total investment for the project will be around 50 million US dollars. 
So that should be small. If the total investment will be below that number, then it can be regarded as a small project. And then, what's a beautiful project? Beautiful means the project will be directly felt by the local people and will be directly help the local people. So that that's the meaning of beautiful,、uh, mentioned by that seminar in 2021. In your writing about the phrase, you made some recommendations in terms of how the beautiful aspect of these projects should be thought of. So I was wondering, you make the point in some in some understandings of it. It also includes the idea of building a good relationship between China and a foreign government. So I was wondering if you could explain the different ways that beautiful is seen, you know, kind of by different players. Okay, first of all, from the government perspective, they would like the project will be supported by the local people, not only by the local government there. So will be supported by the local people there. Then the Chinese government may think that this project will be beautiful. And from the investor, EPC contractor, and the bank's perspective, the beautiful means that the project will get them cash flow. The government will say that this project is beautiful, and then the banks and the market players there will say that this project will get cash flow. That will be good. Project、uh, and there's another thing is that there's no major risks for the banks or for the investors to take. Another point is that they may ask local government or local partners to provide some kind of、uh, guarantee,、uh, such as the sovereign guarantee or a soft guarantee provided by the、uh, Ministry of Finance or the other Ministry of Energy in the host country. Okay, there's a lot to unpack there, and I, I'm so curious about so many of the things you've brought up. But let's just start with this idea of to get buy-in from the local people. And again, it seems like that is a rather new criteria that the Chinese policy banks and other lenders are now applying. Because in the past, there were these big infrastructure projects, hydroelectric, big railways that often had a big impact on the environment. They had a big impact on communities, and sometimes they were quite controversial. What I'm hearing from you now is that they want to stay away from some of those more controversial projects and really make sure that again local stakeholders have a say in these projects, whether or not it's going to benefit them, and as you pointed out, not just the government. How, in your experience, do Chinese lenders achieve that understanding of what local stakeholders want and the benefit of these projects for communities? That will be a challenge. For the banks here and for the、um, SOEs,、uh, those company in China, because they are not so familiar with those kind of standards, how to communicate with the local community and how to achieve the local environmental and social achievement there, that will be a challenge for for them. But the thing is that they are learning how to deal with that. Especially, for example, if it is irrigation、uh, project there, they will understand. How to do that kind of a project? How to make those kind of project beneficial to the local people for their farming, for their plant there? So they are going to study. They are going to learn about this one. But the point is that because, as you mentioned, Chinese are familiar with major projects. But those major projects in the past ten years, let's say ten years, in the past ten years or even longer time, bring some benefit to the local people, but. It takes time to get the local people to benefit more, to feel that this major project help those people, help the local economy, help their earnings, their income, and daily life. It takes time for the local people to feel that. But the thing that the 
Chinese government or Chinese the banks here or the investors in China they are turning from that major products to some small or beautiful products. That's why you can see that the decline of those financing from China in the past few years, or I can say in the past five years. So that's kind of changing is what we can say now. But as you mentioned at the beginning of this discussion, China is improving, is recovering from the past five years. It's coming back for some major projects, but we cannot say that we can go back like what we did in the past. So we are recovering, but we are still slow in such process. Are there any kind of emphasis on which particular kinds of projects would be favored under the small or beautiful framework? As you mentioned, it's if we're talking about a fifty million dollar kind of project range that excludes certain kinds of projects and seem to include others. Under the forum of, on China-Africa cooperation,、um, we saw commitments in twenty twenty one to increased connectivity and particularly digital connectivity initiatives to green energy to agricultural initiatives. Quite a Broad range that could possibly fit into that kind of price range. So, do you have a sense? Is there a kind of a preference in Beijing for which particular kind of small and beautiful projects that they'd like to focus on? Okay, one from long term, one from short term. Okay,、uh, I just want to touch the first from long term perspective. Those sectors, the traditional sectors like the road, port, airport, or the、uh, railways,、uh, mining, so that will be still interested by the Chinese companies or by Chinese government, especially the resources. The other ones from the short term, as Corpus mentioned, that it's true that the digital infrastructure,、uh, the five G or the EVs, and then the Vehicle charging power, on、uh, the data center, and the other SME and agriculture that will be the focus or the more interested by the banks and the government and the SOEs here. Is it the debt crisis that's fueling this change? Is it the slowing Chinese economy? Is it the debt sustainability for the borrowing countries? What is the main driver of this change? Or maybe it's a little bit of all of those together that's brought China from. Funding, say, six billion dollar railroads in Kenya or multi billion dollar ports in Sri Lanka, those were huge projects. Today, we're now at the fifty million dollar. What are the factors that have been pushing the banks to make these changes? It's complicated. But the first thing is that the COVID will be the most key reason. The other thing is that in the past ten years, we can see China lent a lot, and then COVID followed. So some sovereign debt crisis. I can see give some pressure on Chinese government or on the MDBs and the other bilateral creditors. So not only China slowed down, but the others also slowing down. So. We can see it's it's kind of、um, when China lent those kind of money to those countries, we did not predict that the COVID will come, and then the COVID come, and then commodity price is also a challenge for those countries which are in debt default now. So that kind of things. Or we did not mention the war between Ukraine and、uh, Russia. So that kind of things will make the government here. A little pressured, so the Chinese government, of course, the in domestic economy still needs money to recover. But I don't think this will be a key challenge for Chinese government or for, for Chinese people. But the the most key things is that the 
international community or the international environment is not like in the past ten years. Everything changed. Is that specifically you're referring to the U.S.-China competition? Some of the geopolitical tensions have gotten more tense. Is that the international environment you're referring to? That's the key things. But what I can say is that the West, U.S., EU, or the other、uh, U.K., the West and China, including Russia, India,、uh, Turkey, we should work together. To some extent, we can compete each other. For some one project, so okay, Turkey EBC contractor can do it one million, and then Chinese can、uh, half a million. So to some extent, we can compete each other. But、uh, mostly, those kind of the West, Russia, China, all those kind of countries, we should work together. Take Africa as an example. So one project there. So we need the local country to be stable. Politically and socially and economically, we need them to be stable. So the West are specialized in the democracy or the politics, the framework, the legal system. The West are familiar with that, and they are good at that.、Uh, they should contribute on that perspective. Okay, what China can do? The Chinese people are good at working to building a bridge efficiently. And we work hard, and then we are good at implementing the products to do things. So, if the West can get the governance of the local government to be good, the democracy there, the human right、uh, is good there, and then the social environment is stable, and then the Chinese people can build the road, the bridge, and the port, do everything there very fluently. So that will. Benefit to all of us. So let's say that, for example, Chinese people do some、um, mining projects in,、uh, let's say, DRC or Zambia or the other African countries. So we have the source cobalt. Okay, cobalt. We get the cobalt from DRC to China, and then we produce the EV and then the batteries, and the battery will be. Exported to the U.S. and then they can benefit from the, this kind of EV and decarbonization, climate change. We all benefit from these kind of things. If the West and China, we compete, we confront or okay, let's say compete each other in DRC. So this kind of mine should go to U.S. company. This mine should go to、uh, Chinese company. So they would like the local government to challenge. No matter it's a Chinese company or U.S. company, so all the production will be stopped. No one will benefit from this one. So I would like to say that the West and the China should work together in the African countries or in in the、uh, Southeast Asia or Central Asia or in Latin America. They should work that we find a way to work together to benefit to local people and benefit to both sides. So that that's my point. You know, in earlier phases of the Belt and Road Initiative, we saw that a lot of these very big projects that you mentioned before tended to focus on Chinese state-owned enterprises. So I was wondering if you're seeing a bigger role for Chinese private companies in an era of smaller projects, or whether we're still going to be seeing the state-owned enterprises playing a, a key role. And not even just that. Maybe Kobus just to broaden that out a little bit. Maybe provincial actors, municipal actors, a broader range of financiers beyond just the policy banks who traditionally have taken the lead. Okay, private and SOE for the small or beautiful project. If the project is only small, I think many 
Chinese SOEs may not be interested in that small products because they they are familiar with major products, and then the small products will not bring a good number of revenue to them. So they may not be so interested in small, but the private one, the private companies here, when they do some ODI products, they would like to say, "Ah,、uh, small products. No matter it's in manufacturing or the、um, export and the trading, they would like to do this one. Especially for them, the off-grid, off-grid products, solar products in Africa. Many, many of those." Projects done by Chinese companies are from private company, so you can say that the private company is flexible. They have no much fund to do that kind of major projects, but they are flexible. They can do some small projects, and then when they get some a profit, and then they move on to develop another small projects. So and so on. So they can develop very well. Ah,、uh, so in Nigeria or in in Ghana, and some Chinese company are doing some off-grid products there. By now, they are doing well, but they still they are meeting some a challenge. They need more money. Ah,、uh, so ne- they need to find a local financing or international financing for their next step、uh, development. But it will be a challenge for them to get fund from. Chinese FIs. So that's、uh, another question. So、oh, regarding the fund resources, I think if those kind of ODI projects along BRI countries, if they want to get fund from Chinese FIs, no matter it is if it's a or、uh, the policy banks here or commercial banks here, it will be a challenge. Of course, for Africa or for the Latin America. China has a special fund for those kind of、uh, areas. That may be another sources. They can do equity or debt, but they are still、uh, go along with、uh, Chinese companies. So that's the current trend here. Yeah, it's interesting. You've highlighted so many different changes that have happened in recent years, from the scale of the loans, the types of loans, the number of actors that. And the kinds of actors that are extending the loans. And what we've seen in Africa and in the Americas, particularly, is this massive drop off in development finance because these changes have been taking place. One of the things that we've been hearing regularly from our contacts inside the policy banks is that there are still problems that borrowers are having in terms of submitting feasibility studies and projects that really align with these new Chinese priorities. For example. In East Africa, this past couple, two or three weeks, there's talk of expanding the standard gauge railway from Naivasha to the border of Uganda, and once again, we are hearing Kenyan stakeholders and policymakers saying we're going to go to China to ask them to pay for this. Now, remember, the Chinese did not pay for the extension from Naivasha to the Ugandan border for the past ten years, and that was phase two of the SGR project, and they said no a decade ago. There's no way in this current environment that they're going to say yes, given the fact that we're in this small or beautiful phase. And it brings the question up to me: is whether or not borrowing countries in the global south, in Africa, the Americas, and others, have they do they understand these new trends that you're talking about, or do you get the sense that they're still bringing these big projects, big financing needs, feasibility studies that aren't fully baked out, high risk? Don't take into account local stakeholders and local communities. Is there a gap between what the borrowers want and what the lenders in China are doing? 
Yeah, it's true. I think the borrowing country should understand how China works on such kind of major projects, especially from a funding perspective. If they want to,、uh, as you mentioned, that the feasibility study report will be the first thing for the borrowing country to provide it for the MDBs and the other bilateral creditors. They may look at. In detail of the feasibility study report, but for the Chinese FIs, they may not take so much time to look at the details. But that will not be a challenge. Another challenge is the key challenge is that they may not open to such kind of major projects at this stage, except that political relationship between the two countries are so good enough. And the other thing is that the local country is so stable. There's no president election. There's no coils in the local country. So that may help. That may help. Otherwise, that I want to say is that the、uh, borrowing country should have their advisor, no matter it's financial or legal advisor. And this kind of advisor should include Chinese face. This may help them to find a kind of a solution for their project financing. Okay, so that brings up a really interesting point because it's been one of the topics of conversation that we've been having as to whether or not borrowing countries in the global south take the extra effort to bring Chinese competency and Chinese knowledge and literacy into their policy making, and whether or not they hire law firms like yours. Does firms like yours do they get hired by borrowing countries in the global south to represent them in these negotiations? Is that very common? We can say that we met some local、um, borrowing country hired international law firm to help them to draft to negotiate the contracts, the loan contracts on the other. Is it common?、Uh, is it very common though, or is it exceptional? Exceptional, based on my experience, exceptional. Not so、uh, common because mostly they will, for example, the Ministry of Finance will show up,、uh, negotiate directly with the financial here. So that's what they commonly date. But some countries may have their law firm to review the final contracts because sometimes I work for Chinese banks here. So that's the case I met. That's the. Common loan process, but now for the sovereign debt process, the sovereign debt restructuring process, I think the local borrowing country have their legal advisor, financial advisor, or the other advisor are at the table, but I'm not sure that their advisor have a Chinese branch or Chinese office to support them to understand how to proceed. Many many of cases there, we can say, there's no Chinese face to show on the other side. We see this over and over again, and we have not seen progress in many global South countries over the past twenty years in upgrading their China knowledge, in hiring Chinese firms, and having that Chinese face, as you say, as part of the negotiating team to represent them. So it's very interesting that you point that out, Kobus. I find this absolutely fascinating because it does validate a lot of what we've been saying over the past few years. Absolutely, you know, kind of it raises larger questions also about you know in in the past BRI projects were very demand driven, and that was frequently the kind of special feature of the BRI was that it was so 
so responsive to recipient country demands and ideas of what kind of projects they need for development. So Edwin, I wanted to ask you actually, in relation to that particular issue, do you see any shifts or changes in how economic sustainability is calculated for these these projects? You know, are we going to see more kind of third-party you know, kind of surveys or, or, or tests of of whether these projects are actually economically sustainable, or is it going to is our Chinese financiers going to keep deferring mostly to recipient country kind of calculations of economic sustainability? Okay, for the past ten years or past twenty years, I think Chinese companies did many major projects in global south countries. For those projects, there may not be so strong economic stability. Eric mentioned the SDR and the the other. There's another railroads or the railways in Africa that China is involved. But by now, we did not see any um, profit for that kind of projects. So the economic stability should be the first standard or the 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 first standard for the. Companies or for the financiers, for the banks to evaluate the products,、uh, but that's one point. The other point is that for the past twenty years, the Chinese companies are not so good at about this kind of、uh, evaluation of the economic stability.、Uh, the reason is that because here in China we did many major products domestically because we would like to believe that if we want to. Become rich or become better. We should have the road, the railway ready. That's the policy. That's the culture in China. But for those countries in Africa, Latin America, they have different cultures, different history. So they cannot copy, or the Chinese companies cannot copy the domestic way to those kind of projects implemented in Africa or in Latin America. Because they have different political system, different culture, different history. So in China, we the government here can concentrate, or can collect all the people, all the materials, all the money to focus on one area, or one project. So that area and that project will be built up, and will achieve benefit as planned, as the government or as the investor planned. Because the government can. Not control can plan everything or most of the things. So that's the things here. But in Africa, we, I personally, I don't believe that the local government there can control all the money, or to put most of the money into one development zone or into one project, and then to make their that project. Completed on time and then to keep it running, I don't think that the local legal framework, the local democracy, and the local people can support that kind of arrangement. So different country, different culture, we should not use the same way as we did in China. That's actually new thinking, though, because a long time ago, ten years ago, at the beginning of the Belt and Road. Many of the Chinese state-owned enterprises only knew the China method and went out abroad and used those same Chinese, you know, whatever worked in Heilongjiang or in, in Suzhou. Well, let's go ahead and do it in Bolivia, and that didn't really work out too well. 
Yeah, so we cannot copy. The Chinese SOEs cannot copy the domestic way to the overseas products. We cannot do that. The other thing is that the Chinese companies made some failure products there. The key reason is that they want to copy their domestic experience into the overseas products. That will a big challenge, a big risk, or、uh, for Chinese companies. That's also one key reason why some products failed. Because they just those kind of companies or the local even the local governments want to use the Chinese way to do the products overseas. So that's a key risk for Chinese company and for the local countries. Okay, let's close our discussion because it's very late for you. So we appreciate you staying up for us. But last question is that if you were hired by a small country in Latin America, the Caribbean, Africa. Here in Southeast Asia, and they said, "Edwin, tell us what we need to know about how we apply for a loan from the Chinese to get them to build infrastructure for us." What's the one or two pieces of advice, the most important pieces of advice that you would have for these small countries who don't fully understand all the changes that you've talked about today? And there's a lot of changes that have happened. What would be your advice for these countries who are looking to China for infrastructure financing? Okay. For your thoughts, the first thing is that they should have their advisor to prepare all the documents ready, including the economic feasibility study report. That's one thing. They should do their technical or engineering homework, and which project they want to do, and then the project will be the priority of the government or will benefit to the local people. That's their homework. The other thing is that. They should understand what kind of a fund they need: equity or debt. If equity, how much the local country or the local partner can contribute, and in what kind of、uh, what kind of a way is cash or is land or is the other assets?、Uh, if it is debt, how much they want? What kind of、uh, interest rate they are seeking for? Third thing is that if they want to go to The、um, Chinese EPC contractor first. That's mostly、uh, they will do. They should tell the investor they want to do a project finance model or a corporate finance model, because this kind of a two different model will decide how to proceed for the financing. But for the project finance model, Chinese companies are not familiar with that kind of a model, and the banks here are not. So supportive to this kind of model. If they want to do a corporate finance, that means they will provide a kind of guarantee. So that's as I mentioned that they need to tell the banks here what kind of guarantee they will provide, such as the sovereign guarantee they will provide, or the soft guarantee they can provide, or they can use the equity of the SPV as pledge or. The guarantee for the loan, so they need to think about this one. The other thing is that they need to political relationship. They need to set up this kind of relationship. The two countries should have a fluent communications through the foreign fair channel, and then the other thing is that they should know which banks or which ECAD can approach in China. I mean, what kind of 
financial institutions available, or what kind of players available for them to negotiate. So they should prepare this kind of list, and then they pick up two or three, then to discuss this kind of products with them. But the other thing is that I would like to suggest that they cannot rely completely on the EPC contractors on such kind of financing things, because the EPC contractor what they cared is to get the product to get work to do. So they would like to help finance, but the way that they propose may not be suitable. To the local country and to the products, so that's what I would like to suggest. The article is how to define Xiao Armei, which is small or beautiful in the Belt and Road Initiative, it was written in the China ODI Project Finance and Law website. We're going to put a link to that in the show notes so that you can see it. It is written by Edwin Lee, who's a partner in the Beijing office of the international law firm Dentons. Edwin. Thank you so much for giving us what effectively was a masterclass in all of the changes in Chinese development finance and overseas finance. We really appreciate it. I'm also going to put a link to your Twitter handle because you post some absolutely fascinating posts on your Twitter、uh, feed as well. So I'll put that in the show notes. So Edwin, thank you so much for your time this evening. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you too. Kobus, I really hope. That ambassadors and policymakers and stakeholders from global South countries who are listening to this show were listening carefully to what Edwin was saying because the world has changed and it doesn't seem like these countries in the global South, particularly in Africa, understand this and they're not taking it seriously. I mean, the fact that he said that his clients and Denton's, by the way. Is is a major law firm in Beijing, a major law firm. Is that it's exceptional that they're hiring a Chinese law firm and that they have Chinese faces on their team and that they have Chinese competency within their foreign ministries, their finance ministries, their trade ministries. We know that they don't, and this to me is just it's exasperating. And by the way, this question of China literacy and China competency within your foreign ministries and within your government is not exclusively a global South problem. I was talking to some folks in London who were saying that Parliament and even parts of the,、uh, the the policymaking process at Ten Downing are completely clueless on these things. So this is inexcusable in this day and age when the information is out there, the people are out there, and to listen to a guy like Edwin who is just laying it out that the world has changed now. If and this is why it's ridiculous. I mean, just ridiculous. Ridiculous that you're hearing suggestions from the Ugandans and Kenyans that they're going to go to China to finance the railway. I mean, that shows you how much they need to get up to speed and how far off base they really are. The Chinese are not going to finance this railway. Period. End of story. They're going to finance small or beautiful projects. Very important that he corrected us. By the way, it's not small and beautiful. Small or beautiful. So that's where we are today, and you either get up to speed, or the Chinese go find you know other places to put their money.
Yeah, absolutely. You know, so on the one hand, I agree with you. It's very frustrating to see East African governments, you know, carrying on as if it's 2012. But then also frustrating to see other global South governments, and here I'm thinking of some policymakers in Nigeria, for example, going, well, the Chinese don't finance these things anymore, so we're just going to move on to somewhere else, which frequently then means market-rated lending from kind of Eurobond or other other kind of Western lenders, which, you know, there's no problem necessarily with Eurobond lending, but it is more expensive. And particularly for African countries, it, it tends to be quite more expensive. So it, it frustrates me that there isn't more work being put into finding these kind of projects that would make sense for Chinese lenders to still continue to finance, particularly because those projects are the lifeline for African development. You know, it's electrification, it's rural electrification, particularly it's ICT, it's all of these things that these African countries are really lacking. So it, it is a bit frustrating when global south countries and african countries particularly don't do this kind of due diligence to actually make it work other thing that he said which i think was very important as a takeaway is stability he mentioned that a couple of times that the chinese risk appetite has gone down considerably now so if i mean you can blame them (laughs) well yeah i mean but again if you have countries in the sahel in north africa Potentially even the DRC, where there's, I was reading today in Africa Intelligence, where former President Joseph Kabila is warning of instability in the country around the elections later this year. That could be a barrier on lending as well. So if there is political violence, political instability, then that's going to really impact your ability to secure Chinese financing. So that's a criteria. So China knowledge, also stability, and then this question of connectivity. This brings me back to a conversation that we had with Jonathan Fulton, who is at the Atlantic Council and the China Middle East expert, and he talked about the critical importance that the Chinese attach to connectivity. So either rail, digital, trade, networking, all of the different things. If you are a country that is a connecting country in some ways to the global economy, then your chances of getting financing go up. The less connected you are, the less likely you are to get some of this BRI financing. So very interesting points that he made. Again, the transcript of Edwin's comments, which, by the way, are available to our paid subscribers, I think should be printed up and distributed to every ministry (laughs) across the global south. I mean, this was a masterclass, I think, in many respects. He laid it out very clearly on, if you want to get money from the Chinese, this is what you need to do. If you don't want to play by their rules that's okay. You're just not going to get the money. Yep, absolutely. It's crucial for these governments to get up to speed with these issues, you know, not only with Chinese lenders, but with international financing as a whole, you know, because it's like international financing for for development in the global south is not going to get easier. It's only going to get harder, particularly as the climate crunch hits global north countries too, you know, as it increasingly is it's going to get harder and harder to get access to that money. So it's really important for these governments to do what they can to get it. Well, the good news is, is that the Chinese are no longer the only game in town. So we have derided on a number of occasions the Partnership for Global Infrastructure Investment. That's the successor to the B3W Build Back Better World, which was a successor to, I don't know, one of another acronym that the Americans have, for it, but it looks like the American money is starting to flow now a little bit, which is encouraging. 
Also, Global Gateway, which is the European initiative, we've seen a number of projects from that starting to flow as well. So there are some alternatives that there weren't there. I think the promise of American private capital flushing into into Africa and in, in, in the global south, you know, that may or may not happen. But this PGII money is starting to go. They are serious about it. And again, for regular listeners of the show, I think there's going to be like, oh, what? What are you talking about, Eric? You've been completely negative on PGI from the beginning, and I have. But yet I'm starting to see some green shoots now coming up. So that is that that is actually encouraging that there's a diversity of funders. What we're not seeing, though, anymore, and this is very important, is multi-billion dollar projects for large-scale infrastructure. All of the initiatives that they're talking about are in the tens and low hundreds of millions of dollars. Very important still, but this big infrastructure deficit that Africa has, somewhere around a trillion dollars over 10 years, and also a similar infrastructure deficit in the Americas as well, is going to be very difficult to close on $10 million, $50 million projects. So we still face that problem. And one has to wonder, Kobus, as you brought up this question of climate change, that as the climate deteriorates and erodes the existing infrastructure that's there, we have to think that the infrastructure deficits are only going to get bigger. So how do we finance those big projects to protect these countries from the devastation that's coming from climate change and at the same time leapfrogging and getting them into the 21st century on digital technology and other things like that? Huge questions, huge challenges. No one has the answer right now. Absolutely. Particularly, which, which makes that uh, getting those answers particularly hard, is that there's also will on both the African government side and from private funders in China and in the global north to keep funding projects that are manifestly completely unsustainable and will be a stranded asset nightmare within our lifetimes. The ECOP oil pipeline in Uganda being a great example, you know, it's like, why build a massive oil pipeline that also displaces hundreds of communities? Who knows? You know, but but they're funding it, so there we are. Well, because President Museveni said he wants it. That's the end of it. That's He wants it, and the French and the Chinese oil companies are willing to fund it, so here we go, you know. So so this this issue that, that Edwin was raising about sustainability and about who gets to decide what sustainable is, that's going to really define how project financing goes in the future. So it's, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. And I think one of the things that kind of China-Africa watchers would need to do is to reassess and possibly retire this old talking point that Chinese lenders don't have the same or don't have the kind of high levels of conditionality on loans the way that the World Bank does. I think that is shifting too. And, and I think it's important to have a conversation about what conditionalities are now on the Chinese side. I think you're absolutely right. That is a fantastic point. So as we've talked about improving the China literacy on the part of borrowers in the global south, among China's critics, again, we have to update the talking points as well. This is something that keeps coming up again over and over again, particularly in Washington and to some extent in London as well, we hear these old, tired talking points. I'm not even going to start about the Indians because it's like it's crazy what the Indian media goes off on. But still, these talking points need to be updated. I, I've had a couple tussles this past week on LinkedIn with some folks. And again, it's just amazing how outdated so much of the information is. So I think you're right, Kobus, on this question of the Chinese on ESG matters, also on conditionalities and things like that. Things are changing. They're definitely changing. So 
a good companion to our discussion today. Again, I'm going to put a link to it in our show notes, is the Margaret Myers and Becky Ray piece that they wrote in the Global Development Policy Center on Small is Beautiful, the Big Changes in Chinese Infrastructure and Development Finance. Those two go very well together, Edwin's essay and also what those uh, what Becky and Margaret did. So again, all of that's in the show notes. We're going to hold the conversation there. You know, this is the stuff that we do every single day at the China Global South Project. And I'm just going to renew my appeal for folks, if you you got to improve your China literacy over and over again. This is what we keep hearing from the stakeholders. This is what the discussion was about with Felix Chesikedi from the DR Congo and him going to Beijing, that they weren't armed with good information when they went there and they didn't negotiate good deals and they didn't have positive outcomes on it. One source for this, we're not certainly saying we're the only one, but the work that the team at the China Global South Project is doing is part of the solution here. We've got a team of editors from the Global South, from China too, by the way, who put together this amazing daily brief in Arabic, French, and in English. The work is so important that everybody's doing. We have some great new tools coming out as well that will help you to get up to speed quickly. Go to chinaglobalsouth.com slash subscribe. We have 50% off for students and teachers. Just send me an email if you would like to get those links for the discount, and I'd be happy to send that to you, eric at chinaglobalsouth.com. Also, that's on the website. When you see the paywall come up, you'll see a little note there too email me. So if you're a student or teacher, I'll give you some links for a half-off discount. Just make sure you send me an email using your academic address. So we're going to leave the conversation there. Kobus and I will be back again next week with another edition of the China Global South podcast. For Kobus van Staden in Johannesburg, I'm Eric Olander in Ho Chi Minh City. We'll see you again next week. The discussion continues online. Follow the China Global South project on Twitter at China GS Project and share your thoughts on today's show, or head over to our website at chinaglobalsouth.com, where you can subscribe to receive full access to more than 5,000 articles and podcasts. Once again, that's chinaglobalsouth.com.